I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. A sharp increase in generic drug prices that triggered an investigation in Connecticut continues to deepen. The antitrust case that alleges price-fixing and widespread collusion between generic drug companies to divvy up markets and avoid competition has now grown to include attorneys general in 49 states seeking action against 18 companies and two executives for activity involving an expanding list of widely used drugs. We spoke to Joseph Nielsen, Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Department of the Connecticut Office of Attorney General, about the case, how it's evolved, and its implications for generic drug makers, consumers, and the healthcare system. Well, it's, it's the issuance of subpoenas by our office, which turns it into a formal investigation. Um, we have to actually get permission from our attorney general to, to formally investigate a matter through the issuance, issuance of subpoenas. And, and after reading this article, the, the circumstances just seemed um, important enough and suspicious enough that um, we asked the attorney general for permission to serve subpoenas, and, and he wholeheartedly agreed that we should do that. If you would, for our listeners, what what do we talk about when we talk about the generic drug industry? How big an industry is this, and, and what proportion of, of the drugs sold in the United States does this entail? Yeah, I mean, the, the pharma industry, obviously, as you know, is just massive. Um, in 2016, the U.S. pharmaceutical market was valued at around $450 billion. The U.S. market alone accounts for over 45% of the global pharmaceutical market. And generic drugs make up a significant part of, of the global pharmaceutical market. In the U.S., approximately 90% of all prescriptions written are filled with generic drugs. Um, and this year, the generic industry is expected to generate $90 billion in generic prescription drug revenue worldwide. And these numbers just continue to expand year over year. So this is a very large industry that's incredibly important to our national health and economic well-being of the entire country. And the number of drugs that we've identified in our lawsuit, which is 15 drugs, is obviously a small portion of the entire industry. But our lawsuit does allege that these agreements were engaged in as part of an industry-wide overarching conspiracy among generic manufacturers um, that relates to a much larger number of drugs. And we have an ongoing investigation in addition to the litigation that we've already brought, which has uncovered strong evidence of collusion on many other drugs as well. And we will take a appropriate action uh, in the future at the appropriate time on those drugs as well. 
in the United States, the government doesn't set prices for drugs. Generic drugs have been viewed as a, a critical part of the U.S. strategy for making drugs both uh, affordable and accessible by creating competition. H how is this supposed to work? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the generic drugs, the, the entire generic drug market was created um, to create competition for, for costly pharmaceutical products. So back in 1984, Congress was trying to address the is issue of, of costly pharmaceutical drugs and, and really tried to strike a balance between um, encouraging innovation and investment in the development of new treatments in the branded drugs um, with introducing competition in the market. So what they did was Congress created the Hatch-Waxman Act, um, which is also known as the Drug Price Competition and Patent Term Restoration Act. And in order to, to encourage innovation and incentivize these companies to still put money into research and development of creating new pharmaceutical products, they granted a longer period of exclusivity to patent holders um, so that they would get a bigger return on their uh, R&D investments. But at the same time, Congress also um, sought to promote price competition by allowing drugs to become available more quickly after a patent expired. So they made it easier for these companies to uh, get approved to sell generic drugs um, after the Hatch-Waxman Act. These generic companies only had to file an abbreviated new drug application instead of a, a formal full new drug application, uh, which can be incredibly costly and expensive. And so they, they kind of reduced the barriers for entering into these generic drug markets and created some incentives for actually uh, getting companies to enter sooner. And that was really, really successful for many, many years. Um, Prices went down as a result of the, the influx of competition, and generic prescriptions went up. So in 1984, when Hatch-Waxman Hatch was passed, um, generic drugs were only about 20% of all prescriptions that were being filled in the U.S. Today, they're approximately 90%. So um, it was very successful. But over time... Um, that success seemed to wane, and in particular, around 2012 or 2013, um, we began to see uh, price competition slow down and, and price increases skyrocket, and that's really what got us into looking at uh, this issue. What did your investigation find? What Walk us through what the suit alleges. Well, uh, what our investigation has uncovered is that many of these price spikes that we were looking at were the result of collusion, which is widespread, pervasive, and industry-wide. Uh, we've uncovered evidence of collusion from high-level executives all the way down to low-level employees. And what we have found is this level of communication is, is shocking. Uh, it's absolutely not normal for any industry. Um, and the industry is set up in a way that really fosters 
this type of communication between competitors. Um, you know, there are industry events that are that are put on on a weekly or even more frequent basis where these competitors are allowed to get together and meet in person. Um, they have girls' nights out, um, industry-sponsored events, golf outings, trade association and customer meetings, and and a lot of these are actually put on by the customers. So there are large purchasers of these pharmaceutical drugs who who bring all these competitors together in one place for for multi-day events. And um, you can see from our complaint, we actually um, allege that these customers can, at times, benefit from these higher prices as well. So um, it seems like there was little incentive uh, to check this behavior by the customers, which has been part of the problem in the industry. Um, And these agreements among competitors were part of, you know, the agreements that we allege in our complaint relate to 15 different drugs. There are 18 different corporate defendants and two executive individual defendants. Um, but, But what we also allege is that these agreements on these 15 drugs were part of a a larger understanding among all generic manufacturers on how to avoid competition and divvy up market share so that they wouldn't have to lower prices by uh, competing for market share. You talk about the many opportunities for face-to-face contact. How difficult is documentary evidence in a case like this? Uh, I, I take it these agreements are verbal and not written contracts. Uh, what does the evidence in a case like this look like, and are you relying largely on whistleblowers? Uh, well, you're right that evidence in a case like this typically is not um, a written contract between companies. Here, um, we were initially able to break our case open by getting our hands on um, text messages exchanged between competitors and and some emails as well, um, demonstrating significant collusion between one defendant in particular and a number of the other defendants. Um, And so that was uh, very, very persuasive, significant evidence of the conspiracies that were going on. Um, Since then, we've also established, created um, an industry-wide phone call database. Um, So we've been issuing subpoenas for for phone call records of all these competitors, all the individuals at all these companies, and we've compiled a database of almost 10 million phone call detail reports, which uh, cover almost everybody in the industry. So we have had the ability to look at evidence in terms of internal emails from one company and and uh, match that up to to the phone records and it's painted a very compelling picture of where these companies were getting their information from and and how they were making their decisions um, we have had some cooperating witnesses as well to help the case we've we've entered into a couple of agreements with former executives at one of the defendants, and and they have helped us build our case, in particular with regard to the litigation. But uh, we've put in a lot, a lot of work regarding um, 
finding evidence of collusion in other ways as well. And how does the industry explain the rise in generic prices that we've seen? That's um, a good question. I mean, we've we've heard some some of the typical uh, supply and demand type responses that you would normally get in a case like this, but um, it seems like in this case, for the most part, these companies are are defending their actions, saying that uh, in an oligopolistic market, which is a market with um, typically of only a few companies who are competing, um, it's it's typical for for companies to be aware of what the other companies are doing and to follow their price increases, and therefore, you know, as long as the actions were were taken independently, then there's no antitrust violation. What keeps companies following their own set rules in this regard? How do, what what's the incentive for them to comply with a competitor's handshake on divvying up a market? Yeah, in in this case, you know, the the rules of the road, the agreement among the competitors are are really all designed to avoid competition and to avoid price erosion. And so the, the principal motivation here for these companies is that they, they want to avoid um, competing with one another. And if, if they come into the market and they try to uh, take more than what they would refer to as their fair share, then they're going to be punished by their competitors. And these companies are all... Um, repeat players in the generic market. So they, they will see each other in other generic markets as well. So if, if they try to cheat on an agreement in one generic market, uh, they will be punished in another. And, and these agreements are really designed, especially when companies are entering a market, to avoid that you know, ruinous competition that will drive prices down, which is you know obviously what generic drugs were intended to create in the first place. This was an investigation that started in, in Connecticut. Uh, you've since been joined by 45 other states. I guess I should ask you, what happened to the rest of them? Um, and do you anticipate them then joining you? But when you have so many jurisdictions now investigating this case, how do you coordinate with each other? Does that complicate your work? Uh, it can. It can. Um, I would just tell you that we, we currently have 49 states and territories okay. <laughs> in our working group. So so we're almost there uh, in terms of having everybody. But yeah, I mean, there really are, there are benefits to to the coordination and then there are, you know, hurdles with regard to having so many states involved as well. Obviously, uh, we have a group, and we're all coordinating together. So, so we're sharing um, a document review database. We're all looking at the same evidence. But, you know, when we're investigating sprawling industry-wide conduct, where competitors are colluding on many different drugs at once, and and uh, and and the like, it's it can be hard to to really focus 49 different jurisdictions in the right direction. But, you know, the plus side is that we have that many additional resources and eyeballs to get 
looking at these documents and and reviewing the evidence. So, um, all in all, I think it's uh, it's a big benefit to have that many different, really uh, well experienced antitrust lawyers looking at the conduct. And what remedies are you seeking? How how does this problem get fixed? Yeah, uh, well, we're seeking many different remedies. I would say, in terms of fixing the problems, the most important remedies we're seeking would be injunctive relief. So we do want to shine a light on this industry. We think it's important to stop the conduct. So that would mean we would seek um, injunctions prohibiting, you know, maybe attendance at at these conferences, obviously collusion with competitors, um, but we will be seeking uh, external compliance monitors and and uh, things like that, which um, will hopefully go a long way toward um, alleviating some of this conduct. And, you know, at the same time, we're also seeking um, disgorgement of the ill-gotten gains from, from these companies. Um, and, and some states are seeking damages, um, and the states themselves are obviously significant victims of this conduct uh, with regard to their Medicaid and programs like that. So, um, Has anyone put a dollar amount on the type of damage that's been done? No, no. Um, the, the investigation is ongoing, and, and we're really uncovering new evidence with regard to new drugs and new conspiracies you know, on a weekly basis, if not even, you know, more frequently than that. So uh, we're not in a position yet where we could do that, but the numbers are obviously going to be staggering. I know the case was recently expanded, but, but where does it go from here? What What's the progress forward? Um, it's hard to say at this point. It'll be very interesting to see how we move forward, it, it, there's a lot of different variables. We could be bringing additional lawsuits. Um, we have a number that we could be bringing already. Um, but this is not the typical case. This, this case has not followed the routine path for cases like this. Typically, um, the U United States Department of Justice Antitrust Division will engage in a criminal grand jury investigation, which they have done here. Um, but in a normal case, that's usually been wrapped up by the time the states get involved and bring their lawsuits. Here, uh, you know, we're, we've been at our investigation longer than the Department of Justice has, and the Department of Justice has, has not taken any significant public action in this case in quite a while. So um, whatever we do may, de may depend on uh, if the DOJ takes action and how they take action. And, um, you know, it, it could be additional lawsuits. It could be settlements with some of these companies. Um, so I would just say stay tuned. It, it should be interesting no matter how it turns out. Joseph Nielsen, Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Department of the Connecticut Office of the Attorney General. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. 
To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.